Hello and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss why I use the phrase never apologize. Laura talks to Antoine Thompson about leadership, environmental justice, and electric vehicles. And finally, beer is twice as fizzy as champagne. So in both, the bubbles bring flavor and aroma from the liquid to the surface, enhancing the taste. How about that? Nice. Yeah, there's not really a lot more to it than that. I just thought it was neat. I was like, oh, it does have value. Okay, cool. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Wait, is there like a metric for that? And a piece of equipment that measures fizziness? Fizziness. Bubbles. The bubbles are smaller in the beer, so there's more of them. And uh, yeah, that's about as far as I went down the rabbit hole, truthfully. (laughs) The tagline was good, so I threw it in. Um, I need to get back to the the rats that are being tickled. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was a good one. Oh well. Um, yeah. Hit that music. Join the PAEP, the Pennsylvania Association of Environmental Professionals, for their webinar on Historic Preservation 101 on Thursday, August 25th at noon Eastern. This webinar is an introduction to historic preservation within the context of federal, state, and local regulatory compliance for public and private infrastructure land development projects. Check it out at www.paep.org. We appreciate all of our sponsors and they will keep the show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head on over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. Yeah, life-saving. Yeah, I say I, I do I know, apologize right? for not being able to get more involved this week. It's just so it's just it's still magical that you've been able to get these published every single week. So yeah. I would not <laughs> apologize at all, really. Who, oh, and, and Kara, who told us right at the beginning, stop apologizing. Don't ever apologize. Never ever. apologize. Yeah. You get one more, Nick. You get one more. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true, though. Like I do. Because I used to do that all the time. But why, exactly Okay, that. so let's talk about that. Why Why do you tell people not to apologize ever? Well, I, I'm, I say it dramatically. I don't. I don't mean that literally, right? Because there are times when you should apologize for something if you are mean, malicious, rude, for no reason, which does happen. We all have bad days. Everybody has a bad day. You are, you know, more than welcome to apologize for those things, right? You know, if I say something rude that I didn't mean, I need to apologize for that. If I hurt someone's feelings, I need to apologize for that, right? So when you're you don't need to apologize. in the wrong, yeah, when you when you've made a mistake, when you've made a, a genuine mistake. You should apologize. That's uh, that's pretty straightforward. What you shouldn't do is apologize for existing. You know, sorry, I had a doctor's appointment. No, you have a doctor's appointment. You need to do that. That's important. That's part of your life. Don't apologize for that. Yeah. You know, you could apologize for not telling someone you had a doctor's appointment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was just about to say that. It's like if you didn't tell somebody and then you missed, yeah, sure. But don't apologize for the appointment. Don't apologize for getting something in on time, right? I know you wanted this earlier. I'm so sorry I couldn't get it to you earlier. Okay, well, I, you know, it, we have a deadline. You met the deadline. You're good. You know, this is when yeah. I can get it. You can communicate, so that's not even an issue, right? That should never be something you want to apologize or you have to apologize for. And there's a lot of people who, who apologize for a lot of different things all the time that they just don't need to, you know? Right. You tell so a joke the, and everybody laughs. What's the fault though in that or what's the issue with doing that? Because it makes it, you're basically diminishing who who you are as a person 
it's almost you're taking your own confidence away, right? You're literally saying, I'm so sorry. I'm a failure. I'm a mistake. I'm bad. Stop it. You know, like just stop it. You don't have to apologize for stuff for being who you are, right? You just don't have to do that. You have to do that if you're kicking someone. <laughs> you should apologize. I'm so sorry I kicked you, right? You can be like, uh, you can do that. But just for existing, for being who you are, for doing a job and doing it exactly like you're supposed to? No, no. And so I, I say that, never apologize because it happens a lot. People do it all the time. Apologize for yeah, something they don't The need. being who you are one is is one in particular where, sorry, I'm, I'm a crazy person. Sorry, I talk right. a lot. Sorry, I talk too loud. Right. Sorry, I talk too quiet. Right. You know, like for me, it's not so much that... You're making, you're belittling yourself, but you are making excuses for maybe behavior you know you should change. Or you've just said, I'm not going to change this. So I'm sorry (laughs) that I'm too, I speak too quiet. Okay. We'll do some things to learn to speak up. You know, like you're acknowledging that there's something that maybe you could have a better situation from. Um, You now saying, I'm sorry that I'm short. (laughs) Please don't do that. You know, like. I can't fix that. Um, or maybe I could, maybe I bring a chair with me, but I think it's recognizing when you're apologizing for something that is just legitimate. Is it because of something you did wrong legitimately, or is it something that you're making an excuse for, or are you just apologizing? Like you said, for existing, which is, it's not self-serving and it also isn't adding value even to the relationship with the other person. Like I like you for who you are most likely. And I don't want you to tell me that I'm sorry for this or that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and it comes back to confidence too. You know, it's, it's something that if you're apologizing for literally everything, you have no faith in your ability to do anything right. And that's terrible. And you don't want to be living your life that way. You're basically affirming to yourself that you're bad at things. You're trying to say, oh, I didn't do this right. Or, oh, this is, this is my fault. I screwed up when you didn't, when you haven't done those things. And so you're just almost looking for a reason for this for you to put yourself down. And that's yeah. one of the other things that I don't love. And so when someone apologizes for something they shouldn't, I always say it, never apologize. Never. <laughs> Dramatic, but that's why. Yeah. And I think you do have to, it helps you be more aware about it when you hear it. Cause otherwise I think the people that do it a lot don't realize how often they're doing it. It's more like say it's ahs and ums, you know, it's just, right. it's a part of the way that they speak and it's hard to recognize that you're doing it. I still do it all the time. I'll start an email with, uh, sorry, I didn't get back to you sooner. Then I'm like, no one expected me to get this to them sooner, like you said. And then so I will erase that and just say, hey, I had a busy week. Here's my thing. Or sometimes I won't even say that. Like, here it is. I often, and I've read this and seen this before, where instead of saying, I'm sorry, just change it to a positive. Like, thank you for being your patience. So instead of when I have that inclination to say, sorry, this is late or sorry, it took too long. I will just say, thank you for being patient. Here's the thing you've been waiting for, you know? Yeah, that's perfect. That's really good. I love that. Um, I'm going to start using that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, I, I've had coworkers, employees, et cetera, lots of people doing things like apologizing for, you know, I say, hey, we need to change the meeting time. This doesn't work for me. Oh, so sorry. Yeah. For what? For my schedule? You're sorry for my schedule? No, don't be right. don't. Yeah. And even that is like, instead of saying, sorry that I'm short and I couldn't access or reach this thing, I needed to wait for you, right? Like maybe there's something I needed to go on the field, but I couldn't go because I had to wait for you. I don't know, whatever. You could just spin that to like, I appreciate that you are here to help me with my shortness. You know, like <laughs> instead of apologizing for being short, like, yeah. you know, I don't know, something like that. But spinning that, the sorry is into other 
sort of framework. Yeah. And I can say it helps you. It helps you kind of own what you're doing in a way. Because when you apologize, you're like, look, I'm acknowledging that this isn't perfect. You know, when really just say, this is the thing I did. This is what I've done. This is the product. And and have some faith in it. And it's a, it can be a little scary. I think sometimes I'm sorry is a crutch almost. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that people are using like, well, I don't know how they'll feel about it. So if I say I'm sorry right away, they'll be sympathetic to me. But me as a person, I'm going to be able to look at this, whether you say that or not, and tell whether you did a good job or not. And if you say sorry to me, you know, I've seen it enough. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and I'll point it out. But that's why. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So no more sorries. And uh, let's get to our interview. Sounds good. Welcome back to EPR. Today, we have Antoine Thompson, Executive Director of Greater Washington Region Clean Cities Coalition on the show, advocate for people, green jobs, housing opportunities, and small businesses. Antoine began his career in public service as a legislative assistant for the Buffalo Common Council Central Staff, and he has accomplished so, so much more. (laughs) Welcome, Antoine. Thank you. Thank you. My privilege and honor to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, awesome. We are certainly glad to have you. And I'm excited to talk about all the things that you're doing. And actually, your background is so impressive. We had a hard time figuring out where to even start. So why don't you just go ahead? We are an environmental professionals podcast. So start off telling us about the work you do with Greater Washington Region Clean Cities Coalition. Yes, yes. So we are headquartered in the Greater Washington, D.C. area, just a stone's throw from the Capitol and the White House. And we focus a lot of our efforts around reducing America's dependence on, on oil, particularly foreign oil, and reducing pollution as it relates to uh, transportation, environmental sustainability, grid resiliency. We promote the use of alternative fuels, and we're big proponents of, of environmental justice, equity, inclusion, and environmental protection. So those are kind of the main buckets where we focus on. We have a number of significant programs that we work on. And many of those programs, because of the current administration under Biden and this Congress, we're even more busy than we normally are because there's so much funding out there and everyone who knows anything about this type of work is chopping at the bit to try to get some of the funding. Awesome. So why don't you tell us about some of the projects that you are working on? Are these within the Washington region or do you work out of the Washington region and we, we, other cities? So we're part of a 90 to 100 city network of clean city organizations. We work primarily in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. However, some of our work takes us around the country particularly around some of the equity issues, some of the electrification issues, some of the biofuels and renewable biodiesel projects and issues uh, that we're involved with. So some of those are takes us outside of the region. But again, we're part of a 90 plus community network that spans from East Coast all the way to California. And we meet with other clean cities organizations on a monthly basis and strategize around the things we've talked about earlier. That's awesome. Well, I just read that EVs just surpassed 5% of sales of all autos in the U.S. So what you're doing must be working. So yes. what does that mean for the future of EVs? Yeah, well, I, we still have a long way to go. 
But I think that the uh, one, President Biden has really provided a lot of vision and leadership in the industry. A lot of the America, let me first start by saying America is behind the world, the industrialized world in this space. When we look at Germany, China, much of Europe, we are behind in this in the transition to electric vehicles and, and, and hydrogen vehicles. So we're playing catch up right now. Unfortunately, uh, President Biden's commitment through the bipartisan infrastructure law and the $1.2 trillion that's been allocated for different forms of infrastructure, but particularly the millions that are going towards vehicles and electric vehicle charging infrastructure is important. It's not enough. It's a down payment, but it's a significant investment. I would say, in short, that we still have a long way to go because the, the cost for purchasing electric vehicles has to come down. The ability to charge must be faster. While it is getting better, it's still anywhere from 20, you know, 15 to 25 minutes or so, which to me, we've got to change to get more adoption. There's got to be a lot more education and outreach with only 5% of Americans having an electric vehicle. So many people don't know. They're interested, they're intrigued, but we've got to do a lot more education, outreach. Half of the electric vehicles were bought in uh, California last year. So what about the rest of the country? We got a long way to go on education and outreach. And so the other thing is about the uptime for charging. Charging, we had a board member of ours. We were at an event for the U.S. Uh, DOT in D.C. at their headquarters. And one of our board members, Luis McDonald, who's been putting in charging stations for 20 years, he was trying to find a place to charge. He went to five charging stations and they weren't working. Oh, and wow. so about 20% of charging, EV charging uh, chargers are down any given hour of the day. So we've got to fix that. And the feds have to curate policies that address that issue. Those are just some of the high level points that I see. And I would add to that uh, workforce development, upskilling workers, making sure that we have a workforce that can deal with the technologies of creating the EVs, sustaining the electric vehicles, maintaining electric vehicles, training firefighters and contractors and developers and builders on that whole process of, of managing, maintaining properties and projects and infrastructure and vehicles when they, things are electrified. So a lot of stuff to do, a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Well, you raised a good point. So there used to be, you know, classic cars and it just happened to have recently been the Syracuse auto show weekend thing, like seven different auto events happening. And my boyfriend is out with his dad in a car that they bought and they're working on it together. Is that the future? Is, is dads and sons getting together and cranking on electric vehicles together? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Yeah, well, let's think about it. Some of the earliest electric cars were made at, were built at home. So it's a thing where people got to learn. And that happened with the computerization of, of the cars we have now. People had to learn skills to deal with all the technology 
over the last 20 years that has come into cars. So this is just a continuation of that. I mean, if you think of the cars of the 1920s to compare to the cars of the 1960s, and you compare the 1960 vehicles to the 2000, 2010, 2020 vehicles, even if they're non-electric, they're dramatically different. And so we've got to continue to tell people they don't have to be afraid, but it's a never-ending process of learning as these cars evolve with technology. And that's a good thing. And so there's will sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters work together to learn these vehicles? Absolutely. It's nothing new. There's nothing new that is under the sun that has not been done. And there are a lot of folks who built their own electric vehicles, and it would be great to see even more doing it, given the high gas prices. I was at the car shop <laughs> just the other day, and I am trying. I have there are three cars in our house, and I'm, I am on the hunt for a electric vehicle myself. I want one. I want one bad. And whether it's electric or hybrid, I want one like yesterday. And <laughs> so I'm hunting and the inventory is tough right now, but it'll come down over the next three to four months and the market's going to realign. And so everyone save up your money and get ready to get you a new car before the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. What do you have your eye on? What I really, really want is the Cadillac Larique. Um, Cadillac's my car of choice. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I love that car. There's a, a Mercedes as well SUV. I think it's an EB50 or something like that. I've been looking at one of their SUVs. None of them are in stock right now, so that's the you know frustrating thing about it. But I'm patient. So, but those are the two that I'm really looking at right now the most. So I have a. We have three cars in a house and none of them are electric. And I want one of them to be electric by the end of the year. But I've been advised in the fall, inventory is going to be in abundance and prices will come down and we should be good to go. So I, that's my nice. Christmas gift to myself. Very cool. I want to see a picture. Yes, um. yes, I will. <laughs> I can't wait to post it. I can't wait. I can't wait. Trust me. I don't want to ever buy gas anymore. Right. I don't care if it's electric, <laughs> hydrogen, whatever. Get me out of paying for gas. Oh, I hear you. Speaking of that, so you're living in Washington now and you're from Buffalo. Are you um, using the transit a lot, I would imagine? I don't use it as much as I probably could. Unfortunately, the way the transit runs from, I live in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. I work downtown DC. So it's not as friendly. So sometimes I do the park and ride or something we call kiss and ride. I often drive more than I drive probably 99.9% of the time just because I'm not in this district. And so it would take me almost three hours to get home every day. So each way. So yeah, yeah. I'm not prepared to do that because I don't have to do it. So, <laughs> yeah. That's a big sacrifice. It is. It is. It is. So I've done the park and ride and that saves a lot of time off, but it's still not an effective use of time. So I often in the the way where I live, the parkway is right out of my subdivision. So I can drop right on the parkway. It's like nine miles and then it's three miles from the end of the parkway to the front door of my office. And so I only literally make 
five or six turns to get to work. It, but that five or six turns can be anywhere from 28 minutes to an hour and a half. It sounds simple, but believe it or not, five or six turns, maybe seven at tops. I'm at the front door of my office and, they, and the range can be anywhere from 28 minutes to an hour and a half on the train. It can go from anywhere from two hours and 15 minutes to three and a half hours every day, each way. And I just can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I might imagine then, then you enjoy going back to Buffalo where things are not quite as crowded. What work are you still doing in Buffalo? So I still do some real estate in Buffalo. Uh, I've been licensed in real estate 11 years. I do some advising folks on different strategy, strategy work, but I've been licensed in real estate for 11 years. I'm actually studying for my real estate license here in Maryland, finally. So I should have that sometime within the next month. But that's what I primarily do when I go there. I mean, my main thing is my son is 16. He goes to Nichols. And so just trying to make sure I stay engaged with him because I don't, you know, I'm not in Buffalo. So I try to get that. When I first came down here in 2015, I was in Buffalo about three weekends a month. Now it's a lot less. And so I got about two more years of this going, you know, so much, then I'll be on a quarterly basis. <laughs> <laughs> Go see my mom and my daughter. So my daughter, she's grown and married. She's 26. So she, you know, she just says hi and keeps it moving. Yeah. <laughs> Got a family now and an attorney. So, so yeah, so that's, how I, that's how I, I love DC though. I love Buffalo, but DC is the place where if you're in politics, advocacy, you're concerned about the environment and social, environmental, racial justice. This is the place where you can really make a difference. And so I love being in this area. Yeah. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about how you went from politics and law and then somewhere into the electric vehicle clean cities coalition. Yes. Yes. So I'll give you just a quick snapshot on the journey. I started in college being involved with social, environmental, racial, economic justice issues. When I was in college, people were fighting just to get recycling on campus. When I came out of college, I was on the board of a group called Citizen Action, and they were fighting for curbside recycling. Believe it or not, folks, it was a fight to get curbside recycling because local governments didn't believe in it didn't think it was profitable. Greenies, uh, these people who are into the environment, they thought we were crazy. So I was involved with issues like that. When I was young, I was involved with um, some contaminated site projects at the community level. I was involved with a number of issue organizing around issues related to that. And then when I was on the city council in Buffalo, I had this crazy idea about covering an expressway in Buffalo that ran through the inner city that separated two neighborhoods when they put the expressway in. So I got verbally berated and also in writing by the newspaper. But now, 20 years later, the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, is and many and every major federal, state and local official now supports that project. And they're going to they're going to do it. But I got the initial seed money help organize people. They kept it going long after I left office. And now that's finally happening. 
I've been involved with public transportation issues. The rail line or subway in Buffalo only goes down one street. It goes down Main Street. I didn't even know they had one at yes, all. Yes, <laughs> it does. I mean, it won't leave the city line because for the last 40 years, the suburbanites have fought that. And because there's regional transit, all these other subways and, and rail lines start in other, other communities after Buffalo. Buffalo has failed to make progress in that, despite the fact that many employers continue to say they have jobs and people in, this, in the municipalities, particularly in Buffalo, can't get to those jobs because they don't have reliable public transportation. So I was involved with trying to expand the rail line saying, Hey, you got these old trolley lines underneath the road. Why don't we just tear those up? And, you know, there's all this federal money that continues to happen. The MTA, which is the transit authority that covers New York city. They're always getting millions and billions of dollars to expand and protect their railroad system, uh, their train system. Why not do the same upstate New York, the second biggest city? So I have been involved with so many issues around that. And then I chaired the Committee on Environmental Conservation when I was a state senator in New York and uh, was very involved with everything from Green Jobs, Green New York legislation to I did it. I used to host a Green Expo every year. I was solar legislator of the year for the Solar Industry Association. So I did a lot with solar. I'm a solar fanatic as well. (laughs) And so I've been involved with a number of green related initiatives. And so last year I had a lot of different opportunities when I left running a real estate association. I saw this job. I had about five different job offers and I knew that this was something that was going to take some work. But it brought me full circle to stuff I've, you know, I've been doing on and off for some time. So I'm really excited for the good work that we're doing. And it's impactful, you know, and you can help a lot of people. It takes a lot of patience, but it's good work. We deal with a lot of different alternative fuels, everything from biofuels to propane, natural gas to electrification you name it. So we've, we've got a good mix of folks. And then we help with jobs and businesses and air quality, water quality, energy efficiency in buildings. So it's a lot of good stuff. And we've got a number of other initiatives we're doing, putting together with youth around community engagement and teaching our young people about alternative fuels at a, at a young age. So a lot of good stuff we're doing. Yeah, that's it sounds like a great fit for you. You know, you've done a lot of things in Buffalo and upstate New York, and then to move, like you said, it's into where the action has happened in the the center of it all there in DC. And the work that you're doing then with the youth leads perfectly into one of my next questions, which was about, so when you were back in college and passionate about green energy and recycling and all these things, who were your influences that, because that was a, a rare thing back then. Well, and so who well, who were the people that mentored you or that you just looked up to, or did this just, was just, just a thing that was intrinsic to you? Well, so it was in college. I'm not sure who in college. I just think that one of my good friends, Gary, and some of the others, they were, you know, very involved with student government. And it was just something that we were really interested in. And so I gained a liking for that. When I got out of college, and I started working for the city. 
got involved with Citizen Action. One of my colleagues who later worked for me when I was a state senator, but he was he was my colleague and one of the leaders in our office when I worked for the city council, Bill Nowak, I've known since 1996. He uh, was into a lot of green initiatives, everything from district heating to recycling to riding his bike to work on the snowy buffalo <laughs> uh, to just hydroponics. I mean, I've been involved with so much stuff, super fun stuff. And he was really into a lot of the energy related issues. And so he was like kind of a mentor for me on things. And then Citizen Action was. And then I just kind of mushroomed into a lot of different other organizations. But I say I give Bill a lot of credit. And then when I got to the state Senate and I began as the chair of the Committee on Environmental Conservation, I hired Bill as my policy director. And we did a lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff. I did the Bigger Better Bottle Bill, which puts the five cent deposit on water bottles in New York, one of the few nice. states that does that. I did. Um, toxic-free baby bottles, which we need to do the same thing for water bottles because a lot of people oh, yeah. have these water bottles in their thing. And what we know what we did, we made sure that the unclaimed deposits would go back to the state and to help be used to help more people start beverage centers. So we, we increased the ecosystem for more people to start beverage recycling businesses in the state, which are disproportionately owned by small businesses and women as well. So a lot of good stuff we were involved with, a lot on energy, a lot on green jobs, green business issues. And so now being in DC the last seven years, I've been with this organization since November 1st, we're just on fire trying to make it happen. And I love being able to interface with members of Congress, federal agencies, and being able to network and help and empower people all over the country to do good work. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know how you stay on. There's so many things you could possibly be doing. I don't know how you stay on top of it all. <laughs> Study, uh, how many, build a good network. Yes. How many people are in the coalition? So in our coalition, there are a few hundred right now. We're trying to grow that number. Our reach is we have probably a good 15,000 followers that follow us uh, that are either our newsletter plus another, you know, newsletter, social media and all that. So we've got a good reach. We're trying to grow that reach every day. And really, I've like I said, I've only been here since uh, November 1st. So we're trying to really build a movement, grow the movement in the, not only in DC, but from here to across the globe. I just actually had the opportunity to speak at a smart cities conference in Algeria, North Africa about awesome. alternative fuels and, and smart cities. And so we're just getting started and we're really going to try to do our best to make the world a better place. Very cool. Did you mention in your bio that you went to school in, in Ghana? Yeah, I did. So in fact, someone just called me yesterday asking if I wanted to go to Ghana. But yes, I studied in Ghana. I'm a student, a uh, graduate of SUNY Brockport. Uh, while in graduate school, I uh, studied at the University of Ghana in Accra, Lagoon on education and social change. And so I have been trying to get back to Ghana on multiple occasions. And I actually had a meeting with a guy who has a solar taxi business 
about six weeks ago, and he was asked to meet with me. He's from Ghana, and he has a solar taxi business, which is kind of like a, it's kind of like Uber for ride sharing for EVs in in Ghana. And so I met with him, giving him some advice, and they may have a summit in December, and hopefully I'll be a speaker at that. So we'll see. But I want oh, I'm, awesome. I want to go back to Ghana. I've had at least three opportunities. I couldn't go for different reasons at the last minute. But my heart is trying to get back to Ghana, which I love and have. I used to continue almost anything about Ghana years ago. So but I think God's going to get me back there and uh, hopefully before the end of the year. Very cool. I have a very good friend who is her fiance is in Ghana. They've been separated since COVID. The wedding was supposed to be in 2020. And um, we're fingers crossed having it in this December around Christmas. So if there's a summit, I want to know, maybe I can combine those. Yes. Yes. So (laughs) So cool. I am. I emailed the guy to see where things were. Maybe I'll reach out to the Eisenhower foundation, but we're trying to have a EV related summit in December and bring some different investors, policy people and all that to Ghana. So I need to follow back up with the guy to find out where that is, but I'm hoping if it doesn't happen there, it'll happen in the spring. But I also got invited with the the other thing is more of a tourist thing, but they've asked me to maybe see if we can put some business stuff. So maybe I'll, if we don't get it, then I'll see if I can get all that connected from with them and put some value to what they're trying to do on real estate and uh, in on alternative fuels and green technology for EVs. Yeah. Well, if Nick was here, he would be a big champion of us doing like an EPR recording there too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll so do surprise, that. Nick, we're going to Ghana. Yeah, that would be, that would be good, but we're going to try to put it together. So I'm a big fan of Ghana. I've been asked to come back, go back to Algeria as well. The world is a lot smaller than we realize. And the need for EVs, solar, biofuels, a lot of the, I was in Algeria, a number of folks were asking about how can they um, get people to show them the way in alternative fuels in that country and in that region where, you know, there's oil is in abundance, but they know that it's, they got to pivot, right? And so we can help places pivot. The other thing is most people are not aware that Sub-Saharan Africa has the largest number of people in the world that do not have electricity. So, you know, it's you know, 40, 50 million people or more that do not have reliable electricity in their home in Sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a lot of market opportunity for yeah. uh, American businesses. The other thing I just wanted to mention, too, was the I'm not sure if you have talked about the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the opportunities that are there for people in that bill. There's the uh, Justice 40 under Biden. It's a Justice 40 initiative. I'm not sure if, if you all have talked about that in the show. Actually, we haven't. And I do have a question kind of related to that that I think Kara put in here. So <laughs> uh, we can go right to there. All right. So after we have our trip to Ghana, we'll come back to the States and continue our conversations about environmental justice, which thank goodness is finally becoming something that people are interested in talking about and continuing to talk about. 
And we haven't really talked a whole lot specifically about the things that are included in the infrastructure bill. So um, yes. what are your, yeah. th- what are your yeah. thoughts and experiences with that? A lot. So first thing is the, and not enough people know about the infrastructure funding, the average person on the street. I don't think they know or understand and it hasn't touched in the way it will, but it's a remarkable piece of legislation that was passed by Congress signed by President Biden. And it has significant investments in roads, bridges, um, vehicle technology, in a whole host of places, from manufacturing of batteries to making buildings more resilient to investing over $5 billion will go with electric school buses and clean school buses. Some for ele- could be electric, some could be propane or, or different uh, biofuels as well. But the goal is to reduce the pollution from school buses in the country, which is really, really important yeah. because some of our school buses, the air quality is two to three times higher on the bus and it is riding behind the bus. Yeah. Think about that. The air quality for our kids on some of these school buses is two to three times worse on the bus than it is if you were sitting or standing or driving behind the bus. That's the problem we've got to fix, right? And we got to do that quickly. The other thing is, as we talk about the electrification of vehicles, there's a thing that your listeners understand, which is called range anxiety. All right. You know that from your cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when your cell phone charger starts getting low and the blink starting to come, you got to, oh, where's the guy <laughs> find me a charge? I'm going to need a charge. I need a charge. Can I use, what type of charge do you have? Right. right. People get all freaked out, right? It's not like the old days when you just had a landline phone. Most young people don't even know what a landline phone is. But the same is true for your car. When your gas light comes on, uh, you start panicking, making sure that you get some gas before it runs out because you don't want to have free time. <laughs> yeah. Well, the same happens. People are worried about that for electric vehicles because there's just not enough electric vehicle stations. They may not have a they may live in an apartment building or a condo or some other place where they don't where they're worried about having access to charging. So the Congress, with the support of the president, they're going to create 500,000 or more chargers that will go from one part of the country to the other. And that's still not enough, but it's a significant investment. And hopefully the private sector and, and local and state governments will add additional chargers so that we can build out this electric national electric vehicle infrastructure so that people can get up and down the highway, on ramps, off ramps, local fueling stations right now are very diverse. So if you go to a fueling station right now, some already have EV charging there. Some have at the same ones, you can probably get diesel fuel. You can get three different grades of unleaded fuel right now at most gas stations. So if we can push the industry and consumers and the public and private sector to invest more in charging stations, particularly public or for-profit charging stations in different areas, 
we will be more successful in terms of increasing the number of people that are using electric vehicles versus the gas vehicles. Now, gas vehicles are going to be around for at least another 15 to 25 years. However, we want to try to reduce that number, as you mentioned earlier, from 5% and get it up to 50, 60, 75, 80% of either gas or hydrogen vehicles. You're going to see more hydrogen cars coming on the road. And and we'll see what other technologies that come out, because some people are talking about hydrolysis, which is using water to power cars as well. I don't care what we use, as long as I don't have to step as long as I can stop paying a gas bill. <laughs> <laughs> hear you on that. Um, we have a lot of listeners who are also into historical and cultural preservation. And uh-huh. you authored the Buffalo's Fair Housing Law and secured. Is that right? Did I say that? Yeah, right? I did. I okay. did. I did do that. And I did a lot more historic preservation as well. I can tell you some crazy stories on that, too. Okay, so you authored the Buffalo's Fair Housing Law and secured over $75 million for the community development project, like 60 Headley Place, which was a 19th century farmhouse linked to the Underground Railroad. What was that about? Yeah, so so the neighborhood had a lot of Quakers in that area, and Quakers were known to be big supporters of ending slavery. And Buffalo is a community along with Niagara Falls, which I represented both of them when I was in Buffalo, when I was on the city council, Buffalo and Niagara Falls, when I was a state senator in New York. And so Niagara Falls was the last stop on the Underground Railroad because it was right by Canada. And so there are a couple historic Underground Railroad heritage areas that I was very involved with getting designated. And then there are a number of different projects as well. So the 60 Hetley place was a farmhouse, which is near Canisius College in Buffalo in historic Hamlin Park neighborhood, which is the largest African-American historic preservation area in New York State, if not the country. And so it was important to save and preserve that building for the possible connections to the Underground Railroad. And because we were trying to preserve that building so that the Hamlin Park Association and others can use that building for community purposes. And we were able to do that. The city wanted to let the building just collapse on its own. <laughs> and and, uh, and so uh, we fought against that. And in fact, the current mayor of Buffalo, he has started the project. And the previous public works commissioner who later worked for him as well, they were all, a number of folks were trying to let the building just collapse on its own. Oh. So they had put a brace around the building to stop it from collapsing. And they were dragging their feet with funding. And I said, hey, I need you to come to this meeting. We're going to do a press conference and all that. And we did it and got funding and from the city. And then uh, a few years later, he became mayor and, and uh, it was it's actually around the corner from his house. And so the when he ran for mayor, he made let the residents know that he would strongly support finishing the project. And we were able to do that. And so, so it's been a good project. I've been involved with. So one of the other preservation things is that inner city areas, a lot of time preservation rules and policies are not adequately enforced mm-hmm. compared to non-communities of color. 
And so the utility company at that time, National Fuel, when I was on the city council, they were putting gas meters on the front side of homes in the inner city and then and not putting any flowers in front, not getting the preservation board approval, all this like, you know, leaving their lawns crappy, mm-hmm. this nice middle class neighborhood. And so I became a plaintiff in a lawsuit against the utility company for violating the preservation rules. And uh, we won and we had a settlement. So I've been involved with just a lot of stuff in those things, particularly around historic preservation. Very cool. Yeah, there's so many buildings here in Syracuse that I'm like, oh, can I have this? Can I just, can we we take this one and put it somewhere? There's a lot of being restored, but then there's a lot that you're like, oh gosh, how long does it have left? Yeah. (laughs) yeah, Take care of it. (laughs) But you know, what's happened now is they call it adaptive reuse and all the other fancy names that preserve certain buildings. And so that's a good thing. And that's why we have the historic property tax credit that a lot of developers use for mixed-use properties and for housing. And it's just that too often in these underserved neighborhoods, they just don't get the appropriate investment nor attention yeah. uh, the way they need. And so you gotta, you gotta fight. You know, it's just what it is. You know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> Isn't that right? Well, having talked to you for the last 40, 50 minutes or so, it you live at this intersection of leadership and environmental issues and concerns and, and really pouring a lot of your heart and soul into making the world better. What kind of advice do you have for other people? Because you seem to take it in stride, but I'm sure it's very taxing. And so what advice do you have for people who are, especially young people who are in a position like that, where they're really trying to affect change. I think young people, especially now that climate change is widely accepted, are really feeling like they want to be able to do. And if we have more use making all these improvements, you know, we can make these changes faster. So what kind of advice do you have for them to stay positive and motivated? That's an excellent question. So, Laura, I would say a couple of things. One is that you got to keep pushing. Some battles happen immediately. Most are like wars that take time. And you're doing this because you believe in the end result, which is to make a difference. And so it will happen. It's just that some things take longer than others. As I stated, when I was in college, the students were fighting to get them just to have recycling on on the college campus, right? Now we look at like, oh my God. I remember when I was debating for over two hours electronic recycling in New York State. Can you believe that I had to debate a floor debate for almost two hours or more on electronic recycling 10 years, about 12 years ago in 2010? Uh, Now people, Democrats and and Republicans understand the value of recycling. So sometimes you're going to be fighting for issues that you may be ahead of your time. But that's what leadership is about, believing, taking calculated risks, knowing that data and history will be on your side, but it may not be easy. You may not be celebrated now, right? It may be 10 years from now, you know, five years, 20 years from now, but you've got to believe in your mission, believe in your cause, 
And you got to read, you got to build a good support network. You got to have a decent work-life balance, not perfect, but do that. And then keep fine-tuning your skills. One thing that I've always tried to do for the last 30 years is have a thirst for learning, training, being a good organizer, always learning how to organize. I've worked on issue and political campaigns since I was in college, and I still take classes. I still read best practices. I'm still trying to learn. Even now as a leader, I probably participate or attend five or six or seven leadership development workshops every month. Every month. I've been I've been a leader of organizations since I was in high school as the captain of the track or cross country team. Then in college, president of my college fraternity, Black Student Union, Leadership Development Institute, National Student Support Council of Africa. Then I was a city council member, state senator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, running national nonprofits, regional nonprofits, businesses, but I still continue to have a thirst to learn how to lead, how to listen, learn, then lead. Listen, learn, then lead. That's the advice that I like to give young people. Don't assume that everything that the old folks do is outdated, right? <laughs> you know, um, something, some approaches may be outdated. Some of them may not be outdated. There's some just a need a little tweaking. Exactly. And some need a little tweaking. Some may need to be revolutionized. But understand that there's nothing new under the sun. It's just different ways in which you get there. And we often say as organizers that young people bring the energy, elders bring the wisdom. Yep. It's not either or. You need both. You need that wisdom from your elders because they've run through the water before. They've run through that glass window before. They've run into that wall before. So you absorb that knowledge. And that was one of the things I did as a young person. I would, you know, whether I was in high school, whether I was in college, talking to professors and administrators about how to organize what they did when they were in college to when I first started really getting into community organizing. It was a lady named Marcus Strasner. She was trained under Saul Selinsky back in the 60s, and she worked for the Community Action Organization. I remember when I was 25, 26, 27, 28, I would go to her office and talk to her about community organizing. And that's how I became a good organizer from not just going to school for it, not just from working on issue campaigns, but being under the mentorship of people that learn how to organize for bigger and better things when it was even more turbulent than it is right now. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Super inspiring. So I hope everyone is grabbing some tidbits of knowledge there. And I have to ask you, we're over time, but I got to ask you one more question because sure. Nick and I both love music and you talked a little bit about work-life balance, but how often and, and how well do you play the saxophone? You know, good, great question. I am just getting back into it. So I'm playing about one or two days a week. I need to get my time up. But I literally just started a couple of weeks ago. I awesome. played in about six years. But my dream is to get so good 
so I can do like Bill Clinton did and be on TV playing my sax. So that is for those young folks who don't know, former President Bill Clinton is a great saxophone player. And that is one of my, one of the, outside of a couple books I'm working on, I want to be able to play my saxophone at a high profile event. And people say, oh, he doesn't, you know, I do some other things, but that's my big thing I want to do in life is be able to play my saxophone on stage or on TV. Awesome. Very cool. I'm going to check in on you with that. So that's about all the time that we have. Where can people get in touch with you? They can find me personally on LinkedIn at Antoine Thompson on LinkedIn or or Instagram or Twitter. My office, you can reach us at GWRCCC.org, GWRCCC.org, Greater Washington Region Clean Cities Coalition. Just Google that or do an internet search on that. And it'll take you right to us on Twitter or uh, Instagram or, or Facebook as well. So that's where you go gwrccc.org Antoine Thompson and let's make it happen. I'm available. If you ever need some advice, you need some help, feel free to just I'm at Antoine Thompson at yahoo.com. And that's yeah, easy to out. find me and uh, done it all. <laughs> yeah, I give I give uh, my wife said I shouldn't give up as much free advice, but you know, it's it's good karma, you know, good karma. I you know, I meet with folks giving advice all the time and sometimes I do charge, but a lot of times it's just Let's go meet up. You're in D.C. or Buffalo. Let me know if I'm in Buffalo. We'll connect for lunch or coffee and we can talk about how we can help you make a difference. That's how how it is. It's good. Good karma. Love it. All right. Thanks, Antoine. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you, Antoine, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. See you, everybody. Bye.